one, two, three. Not a countdown, but this week's episode of The Film File. As we applaud our 123rd episode. Why? Why not? Because this is The Film Show for Film Geeks by Film Geeks. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And Andy is not in his usual studio, otherwise known as his kitchen. He is, in fact, recording this segment of the show from a hotel somewhere in deepest, darkest Banbury. Hello, Andy. Hello. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, this, is, this is the first recording that we've done in here, so the, the audio might sound a bit different than normal because the acoustics in this room, I'm not sure how they're going to come through. Uh, I'm talking acoustics, I'm talking sound. You just want to listen to the show, don't you? So I won't go into the details of what I'm going to have to do to diminish sounds and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it doesn't uh, sound too bad, Andy. I'll, I'll point it out now. It doesn't sound that much different. Grabbing this time to do this, I've like managed to get off work just after five o'clock today. And it was like, the, the boss was asking, like, can you stay around a bit longer? I was like, no, I've got a show to record. I really have to get these things done. You know, I need some time for myself at this point in time. So uh, I, where I am, for those listeners out there who wonder how close I am to the cinema, I could literally fall out of bed and fall into the foyer of the cinema. It's just over the canal outside my window. I wake up every morning, open the curtains and can tell what the business is going to be like because I can see people queuing up. That's how close I am to work at the moment. And you it's could hard to parkour into the cinema from where you are. <laughs> You've seen the size of me. I can't parkour. <laughs> <laughs> or partake, then. Partake. You know, the weirdest thing, Andy, is that we've been doing this for now several years and pretty much now every recording that you've made, you've always made it from your house. And in the background is a background I'm familiar with. Your, your, your <laughs> board games, posters, board games, your Funko Pops. And uh, so on, not looking at the usual background. Me, I've had a, had a couple of backgrounds, but but yeah, it's it's kind of weird. Maybe I need to get some photos of uh, all the things that I normally have and just put them behind me whenever I do this. So it makes you feel at home. At least we've not got a, a green screen curtain for our YouTube segment, which is really badly lit. So it all looks like a fuzzy 1970s sci-fi BBC production. And, uh, uh, and thankfully, we've not gone down that route yeah. yet. Um, for, for those who normally look out for like the YouTube edits, you might have noticed that there's not been a lot of them recently. And that's because of the way they've been recording like and be a bit sporadic. It's been harder to get them together. Uh, so we're not necessarily always going to record the video. So you won't always get to know those outtakes. However, you will have noticed that we've started posting the actual podcast directly onto YouTube. So you can listen to it on YouTube instead. So, it's it, you know, there's still ways to hear us talk, still ways to kind of see us. Well, you see a picture of us. That's about as much as you're getting. We will get back to the, the regular outtakes because I do like digging through those outtakes and mistakes. <laughs> you mean my outtakes? Uh, well, there's been a handful of my ones where I've just... Comp- I mean, one of my favourite ones is where I just you said, asked me something and I just stared at your blank face and went, sorry, I got distracted. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, I forgot my name. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it, it's something that we like as a little bit of fun, but it is very time consuming and I'm very pressured for time. Um, I just want to give a big shout out as well this week to one of our regular listeners 
who's actually one of the other managers from another site. And that's Emmett from Walsall, who is an absolute legend. And he's been bigging up our podcast to everyone at Banbury when he's been up here. Every time that like he's talking to me, he's like, oh, Andy, does a brilliant podcast. You should listen to it. Film file. Oh, it's a smashing podcast. So Emmett, you are a legend. He absolutely adores listening to us talk rubbish about films. (laughs) Thank you for spreading the word, because that's what we ask is if you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. (laughs) So, what kind of a show do we have for you this week? Well, of course, it's going to be action-packed. Of course, it's going to be in living Technicolor with some amount of CG and Dynamation. But mostly, it's going to be some stories. And those stories (laughs) go with this week's deep dive, The Crow, which came out in 1994 and is legendary for the sad face for the loss of Brandon Lee. We will be giving you reviews on... Uh, Dashcam which came from director Rob Savage, who gave us the rather excellent host last year. And also, Chicken Her and the Hamster of Darkness. Yes, you heard that right. Chicken Her and the Hamster of Darkness, which landed on Netflix this past week. I will finally give you my thoughts on Top Gun Maverick. But before any of that, of course, here is the segment generally called The News. You know why? Because it's filled with news. And as ever, we start the news with this week's box office. And Andy, we know the big release is Lightyear. However, a little bird tells me that the figures aren't as great as expected. So in the US, Jurassic World Dominion held onto the top spot at the box office with another 59 million added onto its total. Lightyear came in at second place. The brand new Pixar film not doing as predicted with only taking 50.6 million on the opening weekend it was projected to take around 70 million top gun maverick is still flying high in third place with another 44 million added onto its total its worldwide total now is 887 million doctor strange in fourth place with another 4.4 million added on and bob's burgers movie still keeping in the top five with 1.2 million here in the uk it's not too different a story as Jurassic World again holds onto the top spot, takes another £5.7 million this weekend, taking its total UK gross to £21.8 million. Top Gun Maverick retains second place in the UK. It's now up to £57.4 million just from the UK alone, which is a pretty good feat. Lightyear scrambles in in third place, £3.7 million. Good luck to you, Leo Grande, takes fourth place. And Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness holds in to fifth. Lightyear worldwide on its opening weekend has taken only $84 million, which is significantly under what analysts predicted a Pixar film would open for. And Jurassic World is currently, after two weeks, on $623 million, making it clear that even though it doesn't seem to have been as popular critically as the previous films, audiences are still going to clamour for some dinosaur action. With Top Gun Maverick, which has been blowing audiences away and sustaining good positioning each week. It's now become Tom Cruise's highest earning film at the worldwide box office. Well, you know that I'm going to talk about it at the end of the review section, but you know, this has been out what four weeks now. Yeah. And it's still in the cinema that I saw it in yesterday was still a a, a packed cinema at a five o'clock showing. So that shows that either people are, still going because of word of mouth or people having return trips but it, it's it's a phenomenon and who would have thought that this film would have been the, the sleeper hit because it let's be honest 
it is a bit of a sleeper hit because everyone expected it to do pretty good, but not the phenomenal yeah. business that it's doing. Even we, when we were talking about it before it came out, said that, you know, we think there's an audience, but it's kind of our age group. And is anyone else going to be bothered? Turns out our age group coming along has forced everyone else to come along. And, you know, it's the people who've loved the original Top Gun who are loving this one even more. And, you know, it's it's gone past 800 million, uh, which makes it, you know, up until now, Mission Impossible Fallout was Tom Cruise's biggest one with 791 million globally. This could very well go over the billion. Because um, it's not had a huge drop off. It's yeah. really sustaining that footfall week on week, four weeks in and still clawing it in. And they wonder why Tom Cruise says that he wants this to be exclusive to cinemas for up to 10 weeks. Yeah. And this is why, because it's sustaining the business. If this had been that 35 to 45 day window, it'd be coming out on streaming next week and that would cripple it. So, well, that's right. I mean, Doctor Strange landed on Disney Plus this weekend. Yeah. And yeah, that's it. That Doctor Strange is going to be pretty much done at the cinema. Who's going to go to see it now that you can watch it at home? This is the box office recovering. And this is really good for people who work in the cinemas to see this kind of recovery for something that, yes, it's kind of a franchise, but it's a franchise that has only had one other film. And that was decades ago. So it's unprecedented for something to impact like this in such a way. We shall talk about it a little bit more, but I think maybe when we do get round to it, we discuss our reasons for thinking why it's got such sustainability. Yeah. Okay, on with the news. What have you got for us this week, Andy? So Disney Plus have announced that all of their seven Spider-Man films and Venom films are going onto the streaming service everywhere except for America. Yes, the Sony Spider-Man films are going to Disney Plus because they've struck a deal in order to get them all combined together in the one service. Right. Well, I'd heard rumour of this uh, a few weeks ago, but didn't want to talk about it until we knew that it had been confirmed. But yeah, I'd, I'd heard. So Disney Plus have got access to all the Spider-Man movies. Yep. Uh, access to Venom, which means that they'll probably have access to Mobius as well. I mean, you've got to take the good with the bad, haven't you? I mean, <laughs> you can't have everything. I mean, apparently Disney Plus are just like trying to de- like say no to Morbius, but, you know, it's going to get forced on them. But no, it means that, you know, Sam Raimi's trilogy, Andrew Garfield-led films... Uh, into the Spider-Verse and, of course, the Tom Holland uh, Spider-Man Homecoming onwards are all going to be part of the nice Disney package. Especially important now that it's kind of seen that they're all a part of the MCU in some kind of way due to multiverse things. Do we need Venom on there? No, not really. But I'm sure there's someone out there who will um, really want to um, revisit those films because weird people do exist um, and on the subject of venom tom hardy has threatened the world i mean he's teased the world with um the third venom script is being made he's he put a photo on instagram which shows that a script is in the works his name is on the cover as co-writer oh tom tom you're not even a great actor don't think you can write as well <laughs> um the, it's the same credits that they had on venom let there be garbage uh, let there be carnage uh, the title page doesn't offer any plot details, doesn't if, even offer what the title is, but it confirms the third Venom is still on the way just by a little Venomy kind of scroll. So it's unknown at this point in time where they're going with it. It's unknown whether Andy Serkis is going to return to the director's chair. But what it does tell us is that even though it had a drop off compared to the first film, they still feel that if they keep the budget quite low, they can churn out the Venom films and make them profitable because they have made them for quite a reasonable budget so far. Over in DC land, let's start with Ezra Miller. 
because we have to, and then we can get it over the, get it over and done. Let's start with Ezra Miller. Reportedly not part of DC's future film plans. Yes, there's been this escalating coverage of all the offset incidences. There's the attacks on fans. There's the mouthfuls of abuse. There's loads of controversy, and then there's the apparent kidnapping that he's been alleged to do over the past couple of weeks. I have to say alleged because no one knows exactly what's going on. But in light of it all, they've now basically said that after the Flash movie, he's gone. And the Flash, rather than being a reboot of the DC universe to like work out the momentum that's going forwards, it's more going to Flashpoint is more going to be a final a final signing off on that era of DC so they can then move ahead with what the new plans are. There might be some elements that spring out from it. Obviously, there's a lot of people want to see uh, Michael Keaton stick around for more. But we're getting that, aren't we, with with uh, Batgirl? Yeah, but there's too much baggage on Ezra Miller, unfortunately, which have proved to be too much of a headache for the studio. Uh, sources for Deadline, which is where the main report came from, indicated that even if no more allegations surface in regards to Miller, the studio will likely not keep the actor in the role for future DC films. Apparently, the studio has tried getting help for them, but the concerning headlines which kept coming and so a decision had to be made and we've been speculating for a while that they've got to they've got to decide what to do they still don't haven't said whether or not the film's going to get a cinematic release the speculation that it might end up going down the HBO Max route and they just write it off it's been a mess for them and at the same time over on the Aquaman side it's looking more and more likely that Amber Heard is going to get completely excised from um, Oh, film. really? I'd not heard that story. Yes, it's, I mean, there's been a lot of to and fro on this, but it's now that Zaslav, who's in charge of um, Warner's and DC entertainment section, he's very much coming down hard on it because he's fed up with this, like, pandering backwards and forwards and causing controversy. He just wants to, he wants to just basically cut everything and then start afresh. And he wants to try to get a more, a more consistent feel to the DC universe but in a good way, not in a let's make it dark and grimy and uh, have Leonard Cohen songs playing on it. And I'm not talking about a particular director. Or am I? <laughs> yes, of course I am. Uh, but no, he wants, to, he wants to stop the trying to catch up with Marvel and start to do their own thing, but give a consistent world-building effect, even if it's a multiverse one, so they can do different themes, different styles, but have some, some quality control in there. And in order to do that, they need to get rid of the controversy. Whatever's going to happen with Warners and DC, we haven't heard the last of it yet. And there's going to be a lot of arguments. And there's probably going to be some payoffs as well, because some people were locked into contracts. Yes. Well, it's going to be interesting because Ezra Miller, we know that the controversy hasn't gone away. And the fact there's been a a few outstanding controversies that have appeared this week um, that could mean jail time, if at all true. So let's say it's another year before the movie comes out. What does that mean for that particular film? I still think there's a chance, and it's pure speculation based on nothing more than, than, than that, is will they recast and reshoot? If they end up going into a lengthy court case, which is, as we've seen with the Johnny Depp Amber Heard story, that, that has had a negative impact on, on both stars, it does particularly mean that that character could be possibly recast at the last minute i'm i'm sure yeah. in a boardroom somewhere in hollywood those discussions have have taken place i mean i, th- I think ezra millen clearly clearly needs some kind of help however this is a big big movie and whether it goes to hbo max which would be disappointing after how long this film has, has spent in development to now mm. 
now to be sort of thrown aside. Would it be easier? Would it be easier just doing a recast at this stage? Does it matter that Ezra Miller has to be the lead? Just putting it out there. Well, Miller has deleted their Instagram account this week. And there's a court who are attempting to serve an order against them who is reportedly unable to locate where they are. We said quite a while ago that, you know, Miller did need some help. Warners are basically saying that they tried to get the help, but it didn't really get anywhere. And I think it is a shame because that was a rising star. That was someone who was just, you know, had shone in some low-budget indie things and started to gain momentum and traction in a more primary role. And I can't condone the alleged allegations which are being made against Miller. But it's not going to stop me feeling sorry for someone who has seemingly just thrown their whole career and life away. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's an absolute shame when you see someone like go like that. You don't know what's pushed them over the edge. You don't know what's led to all this. You don't know whether there was something that could have been fundamentally fixed. But, you know, it is really a shame, especially seemed as though I just really fallen for the character of the flash in that recut (laughs) version of that shoddy film and that was the one standout that made me go wow i can't wait yeah wherever you are ezra seriously get help seriously because you're too young to throw your life away like this absolutely anyway moving on moving on to something lighter (laughs) i was going to say joker 2 is that lighter well could be because lady gaga is in early talks and and we mean very early talks to join the sequel it's reportedly a musical and it's been reported that she will be harley quinn which now we understand the uh the title that we revealed last week where it was the french thing for about a uh, shared psychosis because a harley and joker tale would be the two of them sharing the psychosis and them imagining it as a their love affair as a musical would be perfect. See, this when we were saying last week that, like, uh, is there room for a second a sequel to this film? It's like, but where could they go? As soon as I saw Lady Gaga musical, I was like, okay, now I'm in. I really need to see this film. This could be something absolutely mind blowing in the yeah, a Joker film as a musical, and it'll be a, a bizarre, crazy, inspired, insane love affair. Yeah, very, very different to the dark and moody character piece of the first film. And it gives it a reason for existing and not just doing the same thing over and over again. Okay. Is that the end of our DC news? I think that's pretty much it. So let's just flip back to Marvel. And don't whether you saw that Marvel Studios is in early development of a Wonder Man series. Yeah, saw that uh, by the scribe behind Shang-Chi. Yes. Um, For those who don't know who Wonder Man is, um, a.k.a. Simon Williams, he's a founding member of the L.A.-based West Coast Avengers and became a celebrity thanks to his day job as an actor and a stuntman. Uh, the character also developed very strong ties to Vision and Wanda, Scarlet Witch, which we've had confirmation that they are thinking of the future of the Scarlet Witch. Yes, you thought that we, we'd seen the last of her in Doctor Strange. Turns out she isn't gone. Of course she isn't. There's a multiverse out there. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, Shang-Chi's director, uh, Destin Daniel Cretton who's teaming with Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Community writer, producer, Andrew Guest on the project. Now, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Community. Wow. Two shows that I can re-watch and re-watch and re-watch. So I, I'm up for this. Well and truly up for this. Guest is going to serve as head writer. Cretton will executive produce and possibly direct an episode or two. And filming could start as early as next year. Interesting. Uh, we've got news 
on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 because that's added crazy rich Asians Nico Santos to the cast. Basically, it's looking like Guardians 3 is uh, is the new Knives Out that just when you think <laughs> all, it's all over, they just keep adding more cast, member, cast members into it. Between Guardians and Oppenheimer and Knives Out 2, which has a title, I believe? Uh, yes, uh, it's not more Knives as one uh, thought it was going to be. <laughs> Glass Onion. A Knives Out mystery. Uh, but that's a separate see, story. Well, I'm just going to jump in there because there's a mystery. That is a good mystery, but it's also a Beatles song. Is there some kind of yes. clue? Anyway, so back to Guardians. Between them, those three films are using up everyone in Hollywood. And it does feel that, because James Gunn has said that this is the last Guardians film. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to upset some people with the way that he ends some characters. I'm expecting a death. We know how James Gunn works. He likes to pull fast ones on us. Yeah. Uh, and I think that this is his chance to bring as many people who've loved working with him or he's inspired by into this last outing. We know how much he gets on with all the people who work with him. He creates a really like social environment to work in and he loves to throw his friends and his buddies in in cameo roles. Nathan Fillion pops up, even if not physically, at least with a line of dialogue, so often. So I don't think this will be the last of the people who will turn up in Guardians 3. And I think there'll be a an array of cameos in there, including some obscure characters that he just wants to shoehorn into the MCU because, hey, that's what he does, just like he's done with Peacemaker. He's done exactly the same with Peacemaker. He's shoehorning every obscure character from DC. We love what James Gunn does. It's going to be a shame to see the Guardian series come to an end, but I'm, I'm expecting it to go out on a high. Because got to remember that we, we get the, the Christmas special and we get yes. Guardians 3, and, and both apparently have finished shooting because they were shooting back-to-back. So the addition of more cast is very, very intriguing. So could they be just voice cast in, and they are CGI characters? You know what? Who knows? We could speculate until the cows come home. But as ever, colour us intrigue. Over at Universal, and Universal are reportedly circling the Gal Gadot-led biopic Cleopatra which was previously going to be going into production with Paramount Pictures. Uh, Paramount apparently still remains interested in the project, but isn't prepared to meet the timeline that the project's creative elements are asking for. Uh, For those who don't know the story of Cleopatra, you really need to go back to school and learn history. (laughs) Or at least watch the Elizabeth Taylor movie. Yeah, this film's going to explore the life of the famed ancient Egyptian ruler who had a complicated relationship with Rome and became the lover of Caesar and Mark Antony. And Falcon and Winter Soldier director and executive producer Carrie Scogland remains attached to direct with Lita Caligridis, who's written the screenplay. Gadot, Charles Roven and Jason Varsino are producing. I don't know. I don't know with Gal Gadot myself. Sometimes she's really good. But then other times she's death on the Nile. Yeah, I was going to say something, something similar to that myself. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I like her as Wonder Woman. I think she's got the stature. I think she's got the presence as Wonder Woman. But she just doesn't seem to be able to get into a meaty piece of work. Maybe, maybe this could be the one to do it. She's been passionate about being involved in this since it was first announced. So maybe this is the one that will showcase exactly what she can deliver for us. Uh, talking of biopics, have you seen the teaser for Anna de Armas as Marilyn Monroe in The Blonde? I've not seen that teaser, no. She looks great. I mean, she... Is she looking... She looks like Marilyn. It's as simple as that. But I know what would have got you excited over the week. That would be the first look of Ryan Gosling 
as Barbie's Ken. <laughs> oh, you know that this film is top of my agenda for next year, don't you? Yeah, I am well and truly a big Barbie fan now. I want to buy all the dolls. Uh, what a great... I mean, that was just pure Kendall. Um, exposed shirt and like looking like looking as fake as a Kendall. And I, I just thought, yeah, I, I am. I, I am so in for this film. I don't know what to expect. I think as long I know as it what doesn't to expect, but I, I think don't it's going to be it's going to be out there. I think it's going to be something which is just really going to pull the rug under people's feet um, for what people expect from a toy movie. Um, what about Star Wars? Because we know that I, Star Wars that. is doing pretty well. Popular, popular it, little uh, TV series. It seems to have done done well over recent years, hasn't it? You know, with a uh, you know Rogue One, and then on TV screen we had Mandalorian and Obi Wan, which we are loving. Let's be yes. honest, we are loving right now. But things are about to change with the fan servicing that they seem to have been doing because everything so far seems to have lent into already established characters or themes that were already established. Even the Mandalorian, even though it was a new character, it was just basically a Boba Fett-esque character and it drew on Tatooine as the reference points to give the familiarity and then it threw in some like names and things that we'd seen before. Well, things are about to change. The upcoming TV series, Star Wars The Acolyte, will finally take us to a time period well away from the one we're familiar with, as it explores the final days of the High Republic era. Showrunner Leslie Headland spoke about how she's deliberately wanted to move away from the other Star Wars shows and their reliance on legacy characters or themes, even though it will still focus on the Jedi Order. Um, It's a sentiment to Thor Love and Thunder filmmaker Taika Waititi, who seems to agree with. The New Zealand filmmaker spoke to Total Film himself, recently about his own planned Star Wars film and indicated that his work is planning to step into new territory for the franchise, not just because he wants to, but because the franchise needs it in order to stay healthy. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. It still surprises me that Star Wars has has become bolder on TV than it ever did in the movies. And and I'm starting to think that that's the best place for it. Do we need to see other Star Wars films at the moment? It has to do something very special to take us away from the intimacy that TV versions have had, uh, which has been about character development as opposed to to big battles. So if Star Wars is going to be relevant to cinemas, it has to do something beyond what we're seeing. Because, you know, even 20 years ago, 10 years ago, the level of effects work and the level of believability that the TV shows are bringing would still be still be fresh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean CGI has been around now plenty of time, but to spend that amount of money each week on these shows is is a huge amount with that amount of talent and that amount of creativity and that amount of sets, because we're not based as most TV series are within the same returning sets every week. They're they're pretty pretty broad. So interesting to see how Star Wars goes from this point in time. How Taika Waititi set like put it forwards as to why it needs to break the mold a bit and do something different without legacy characters his words are perfect and i'll try not to do a a dodgy new zealand accent here but i'll probably might slip into it look i think for the star wars universe to expand it has to expand i don't think that i'm any use in the star wars universe making a film where everyone's like oh great that's the blue prince of the millennium falcon oh that's chewbacca's grandmother that all stands alone that's great though i'd love to take something new and create some new characters and just expand the world. Otherwise, it feels like it's a very small story. And that's what I've been saying since day one of Disney saying they were going to make more Star Wars projects is stop focusing on these three or four planets because there's a galaxy of adventures out there and a huge time frame. And it's great to see that the new creative showrunners and 
Waititi's is apparently going to be the next film that will go into production. Are looking to break away. Talking of Waititi, oh, have you seen the new? I could uh, talk about Waititi every day. I know. I adore everything I'm seeing about the new Thor trailer at the moment. I cannot wait. Um, it, it just looks anything that he puts his it name looks the to. Biz. Just straight away gets me excited, and it looks absolutely brilliant. It looks like it's going to... I think that Thor Ragnarok was the best Thor movie. I think this has potential to blow that out of the water from what I'm seeing so far. Will I be disappointed? I hope not. Taika Waititi has never let me down yet. Even when he gave us a TV series of what we do in the shadows that we went, do we need a TV series? Turns out we did, because it's better than the film. Taika, (laughs) keep delivering. Right, we've spoken about it before, but Sony Pictures and PlayStation Productions have now set an August the 11th, 2023 release date for their film adaptation of the Gran Turismo Professional Driving Simulator franchise. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week, and apparently, stop me if I'm wrong, Andy, there's a true story element to the script. Yes, uh, they're gonna, they've released an official synopsis which reveals that they're not going to go down the Need for Speed route where they gave it a fictional crime drama narrative around a racing game. Instead, they're taking the approach of an aspirational drama inspired by a true story involving the games. It's described as the ultimate wish fulfillment tale, and it follows a teenage Gran Turismo player whose gaming skills were good enough that he won a series of Nissan competitions to become an actual professional race car driver. And I briefly mentioned this when we first talked about the Gran Turismo thing, that the Gran Turismo Racing Academy was a way to get new drivers onto the circuits. And that's what they're using for the story. So called it. I said exactly what this film was going to be. It's almost like I know the games. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting approach because it is going to, you know, it makes the whole reason of it being a Gran Turismo film and not just a car racing film because it is about someone who worked up through that GT Academy by entering a competition as a video gamer. And, it's one of those true stories that when you read it, you just think, really? Someone played a video game and is now racing on like formula tracks. Genuinely a true, to- true story. Neil Blomkamp, definitely on board to direct. And <laughs> the project is moving at top gear to go into oh, production. see what you did there. Oh, um, oh that, I apologize for that one. <laughs> I can't remember if we mentioned this, but we know that Disney has been remaking a lot of its animated film. Well, the latest one, that it's going along with is their take on Hercules. It's finally to have a big screen, a live action version. So there's still no release date, but we've got a director. Yes. Now he's, he's already dabbled with Disney live action adaptations when he gave us Aladdin, which was pretty well received. I've still not seen it, but I've heard good things about it. And this is Guy Ritchie, who's going to return to Disney Pictures to bring the new version of Hercules. That's interesting because I'd heard all sorts of problems about reshoots on Aladdin, but um, they were a little bit more than rumours, but carry on. Yep. Obviously, whilst there has been rumours about problems on the set, Disney are happy for him to work with them again. It might be because directors of Avengers Endgame, Joe and Anthony Russo, will be producing, and that gives them a steady hand to maintain the, the, the kind of feel and kind of tone. Those two behind the scenes should make should rein in any issues that there might have been in the past. Uh, the studio is reportedly currently hiring writers after Dave Callahan has written the first draft. Richie recently shot an untitled action thriller with Jake Gyllenhaal, which is now with MGM and Amazon, so we'll be getting to see what he does there. He's been doing a lot of things going straight to Amazon recently. It'll be interesting to see him get back onto the big screen with something you know, a bit more family-friendly and a bit more fun. 
As long as he doesn't cast Jason Statham as Hercules, I'll be more than happy. Over onto TV projects that are in the pipeline. Now, one that I think we both got our eye on is um, HBO Max's Welcome to Derry. Oh, you the... see, yes, I've heard a little bit about this. I didn't have any details on it. I didn't know if this was kind of... We, we mentioned this briefly a, a couple of shows ago, if I remember correctly. Yes, this is a prequel to the two-part film adaptation of Stephen King novel It, and it's expected that the series are going to explore the origin story of Pennywise the Clown, as well as the dawn of the 27-year curse that haunts the small town. A big portion is also expected to take place in the 1960s. Um, Andy Machete, who directed the first two films, is attached to his executive produce to keep that consistency of the theme with it, along with Barbara Machete and Jason Fuchs. Scribe Shelley Meals has confirmed that the writer's room is now open for the show, and this is going to go to full series. So this is one that I'm well and truly, well and truly excited for, because Stephen King adaptations, some are good, some are bad. I think that it was a bit of both, and it was well, more because of how the first edit- one was great. First one was was really good. The second one, it went off on some kind of tangent, which I just it had one scene which was so unforgivable it threw me out of the film completely, and I never recovered. Did it involve uh, someone vomiting to a soundtrack? Yes. Yeah. I absolutely pointless, pointless scene. The fact that they brought the kids back, which was pointless. I, I thought yeah. the first one was great. I thought it was a very classy take on Stephen King's It. It did something different while retaining the sensibility of the first film. Second yeah. film went off into I don't know where territory. Too much confidence, too much money. It would be interesting if Machete ever got a chance to get, because he's always said about he wants to go back and re-edit the two films into one to more feel like the book so it cuts backwards and forwards throughout because i think what let down the second film is that the first film was made as a kind of standalone just in case they couldn't make the second part yeah whilst the structure of the second film was more fitting to the book there was no reason for us to flash back to the, them as kids anymore and so it just felt a mess whereas it should have been over the two films cutting backwards and forwards to parallel how their lives had gone it'd be interesting if machete ever gets around to doing that maybe that'll come off the back of this series if it ever works they might get that to re-edit it. Because apparently he's also got loads of footage that he wanted to include and he wanted to change things around as well. Will we see it? Who knows? But I'm interested to see the backstory of Derry because I think that there's an interesting, dark, disturbing aspect of the town that could be really be dug Did into. Did you ever see uh, Castle Rock, the series Castle Rock? I caught all of all of the first season I watched. How many seasons did it go to? Two or three? I think three? it was only two. I think it, I've, I've never yeah. seen them. I thought I it was a nice it. idea. When it was good, it was really good. And how it wove certain elements of Stephen King's stories into it, I thought was really smartly done. But it also felt a bit too episode of the week at times. Right. It didn't quite have the consistency across it. Okay. Um, kind of sad news, but also I think it gives it a chance to go out in a blaze of glory, is that um, the TV adaptation of Snowpiercer is getting one last fourth season. And then You've it's going to end. You've loved this, haven't you? I have indeed. I didn't think that I'd enjoy it as much as I did, but every season has built and built. But after the most recent season, I thought to myself, hopefully they'll end this soon because I don't want it to just keep churning them out and just become formulaic and repetitive. It felt like it was leading up to a finale. This fourth season gives it a chance to wrap up its story arcs, wrap up its threads and go out as one four season brilliant adaptation of a graphic novel and film because it's not 
it's inspired by the film. It's inspired by the graphic novel. It takes elements of both and does its own thing. And this has been a show that I have fallen in love with pretty much all the characters. Even the creepy ones, even the disturbing ones, they've all felt very real. And I, I, I will never stop recommending Snowpiercer to people. So once the four seasons out there, if you've been putting it off and putting it off, just binge all four seasons and have fun with it. And speaking of snow, uh, Jon Snow is getting his own spin-off from Game of Thrones. Yeah, saw that. I mean, we're expecting the, the prequel, and now we're getting Jon Snow, uh, Private Detective, I think, in which Jon Snow <laughs> sets up his own detective agency with uh, a laughable sidekick dragon. <laughs> On hilarity every episode. Yeah. Kind of like Moonlighting, kind of Game of Thrones. I, I, I think it's an inspired idea. You know what? I, I would probably watch that, to be honest with you. <laughs> Yes, uh, Lee was just pulling your leg there. That's not what the idea is going to be. It's a a series is going to be, like Lee said, there's the House of Targaryen series, which is going to be a prequel set decades before the events of Game of Thrones. And it will tell about the House of Targaryen and how it rose to power and then it fell. And they're now starting to develop early development on a sequel. Yes, set after the events of Game of Thrones, because all that we saw at the end with regards to the character of Jon Snow is he left his old life behind, journeyed north of the Wall, to live with the wildlings and so is he going to become the new leader of the wildlings or is he going to find something more dark and disturbing than the you know the the undead wraiths that were plaguing those lands surely they weren't the only chilling menace up in those northlands yeah i kind of like the idea interesting that they're taking this one because i've always thought there's been a lot to explore beyond the wall that neither the books nor the tv series really explored in any great detail so there's the, the tribal natures the cultures everything why do people choose to live in that harsh environment with death around every crevice so this is one that i'm i'm definitely keeping my eye off for even though i'm still not sold on kit harrington as a direct, as an actor yeah i know what you mean know what you mean um some sad news two cast members have died and production has been halted on the netflix series the chosen one which is an adaptation of mark millar's and peter gross's comic uh, american jesus so basically what has happened uh, a crew van accident occurred uh, on the way to the set and uh, a crew member and cast members ultimately had a fatal accident. And so it's been uh, one of those series which has had a sort of a, a long gestation period and finally got into production. Uh, but production for now has been halted. It's really, really sad news for something like this to happen on a set. It's sad news when anything happens on a set and causes tragedy. And the thing that's been quite a few incidences that have been quite high profile over recent years and in other sad news we lost the great character actor probably best known in my humble opinion for uh boogie nights but we lost philip baker hall uh, a, a great character actor whose work well just traverses uh, across the across the industry yeah i mean even if you didn't know the name you will have definitely seen him in pretty much low like pretty much throughout the decades particularly the last few decades when we saw him in films such as argo talented talented mr ripley zodiac dogville truman show boogie nights hard eight magnolia this guy was prolific um right from 70s 1970s the brisky point um he debuted in and his most recent film was Dear Chickens a few years ago, which was a, a short film, and The Last Word um, the year before that. But over on TV, he had appearances in 
episodes of MASH. He had appearances on TJ Hooker, Benson, Falcon, I mean, Falcon Crest, LA Law, Seinfeld. You, I'm telling you, if you Google search Philip Baker Hall, as soon as you see his face, you will start to remember episodes of TV shows that you, sh- you saw him pop up in because he's been in TV throughout the decades, including providing voice of Hank Hippopolis in BoJack Horseman uh, to bring him to a whole new generation of people. This was a great actor. He was a marvellous character actor. He was, he was never really like a, a great lead actor, but he was one of those that we like to say it's, he just brought something to every character that he did that films benefited from his presence being in there. And that marks the sad passing of Philip Baker Hall, aged 90. And that is this week's The News. And this is the part of the show where we say, if you're not a subscriber, why not? Why not indeed? All you have to do, head over to your favourite podcast platform, search for the film file, hit that subscribe button and become part of, as Vin Diesel would say, the family, because it's all about family. Want to be part of the family? Hit the subscribe button, please leave a review and find out more about the film file by simply doing one of these. Uh, head on over to Twitter, follow us at Filmfile UK, search for us on other social media platforms, Filmfile UK. We occasionally post some po- photos and things on there of my Funko Pop collection. Or you can get in touch with us with any thoughts, suggestions, reviews, top lists, anything film or entertainment related that you want to talk to us about. Fire it on over, podcast at filmfile.uk. And now it's time for this week's deep dive. The film came out in 1994, a period in time when comic book adaptions were pretty rare. So The Crow had a tendency to stand out. Based on the comic book by James O'Barr, it featured the character of Eric Draven, a murdered musician who is resurrected to revenge his own death. And that of his fiancée. Directed by Alec Proyas, written by John Shirley and David S. Chow, and it starred Brandon Lee in his final appearance. People once believed when something terrible happens, a crow could carry that soul back to put the wrong things right. You some kind of Brandon Lee. Boy and his bird. Awful tusk. The Crow. Mr. Gideon. Who? I'm not paying attention. Now playing. I think we'll start by saying both Andy and I have got a lot of love for this film. But it's one of those films that you just cannot talk about, sadly without talking about the tragedy of Brandon Lee, who was fatally wounded during filming. The film was almost done with production, and most of his scenes, and most of his scenes before his death had been completed. So the script went, went through several rewrites, a stunt double, and very early digital effects to bring it to the screen. And the film is dedicated to Brandon Lee and his fiancée, Eliza Hutton. It's sadly that's how we will always remember The Crow, and that, to some extent, takes away from the fact that this is not only a very good comic adaptation of probably a lesser-known comic, but also, in its own right, a pretty damn good movie that I know, Andy, I think you love as much as I do because it recently landed on Netflix and you got a chance to rewatch it. 
Yeah, I remember when this film was coming out and because we knew of the tragedy on set, it was one of those films that you felt that you needed to see. I mean, Brandon Lee, he he was he was just on the rise. I mean, he'd had small parts in films like Legacy of Rage and Laser Mission in the 80s. But then he had like Showdown in Little Tokyo and then Rapid Fire in 1992, which started to put people put him on people's radar. And then The Crow went into production and it was one of those things that was like, this could be the film that would launch him to superstardom. And sadly, sadly, the accident on set due to negligence. And we saw a similar incident on set due to negligence on the Alec Baldwin production earlier this year, which shows that people are still not learning from these kind of things. And in the role of Eric Draven, Brandon Lee is mesmerizing absolutely mesmerizing i know that um obar the writer of the comic book he f- basically felt that losing lee during this production was like losing his fiance all over again because bar wrote the crow drawing on his own experiences and his own want f- lust for vengeance and his own like you know his l- sense of loss and losing Lee at the same time, it made him regret even writing the comic book in the first place, kind of blaming himself for putting Lee into the position that led to the loss of Lee. Lee's stunt double, who was used, because like you say, they'd shot the majority of the film, yeah. and it was only for flashback scenes and little extra elements. The stunt double, do you know who the stunt double was? I don't know. Chad Stahelski. Oh, You really? might recognise the name as the guy who gave us the John Wick films. Yes, he was the stunt double. He, he'd done work on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He'd done stunt work back in the 90s. He was the stunt double who was used as the stand-in. And they used very early CGI, which is almost... Watching it, you can't see the breaks. You can't see where Stelsky's been used. It's so well done. And I think that's helped by Proyas's own visual style and flair yeah. that he brought to it. Proyas, for those who don't know what Proyas is capable of, my two go-to films are this and another one of his early ones which is dark city yeah I've got a and lot that, of time for that film a lot of time yeah he's done he's done bigger budget ones like i robot which is a great film he's done knowing he's done gods of egypt but crow and dark city demonstrated a low budget sort of noirish approach to films i mean the crow has rainwashed streets Proyas likes to have, same as Tim Burton, he built models and would have cameras sweeping across the models of like cityscapes and things like that, giving it a, a semi-real, but also very comic booky surre- surreality to the whole thing that really like grounds everything and really gives it its own visual presence. The environment in which is this film and Dark City are set are characters in and of themselves. Um, the Crow is set over... October the 30th, Devil's Night in Detroit. Every October the 30th is called Devil's Night in Detroit because there's gangs who go setting fire to buildings and causing mayhem and causing destruction. And it's during one of these nights that Shelley Webster and her fiancé, Eric Draven, are killed. And then a year later, Eric rises back from the grave because the crow, which is said to be carrying the souls up to the afterlife, sometimes it pulls them back down to complete the acts of vengeance and get revenge on those around them and thus start a brilliant, absolutely mesmerizing revenge tale. And it is just basically, he's going round to take out all the people who are involved with it, but that puts him up against the head of the underworld bosses within the Detroit community. I mean, to some extent, this is the Batman film that we always wanted to see. Uh, the, mm. the visuals, the, the rain-swept sets, the, the sort of neon, uh, fantastic soundtrack, which I'll get on to a minute. 
but it, it was the first of the of the comic book adaptations which okay lesser known character but it propelled the crow into almost uh, uh, almost into cultdom um let alone the death of lee but but the look of the crow uh, the sort of gothic uh, uh, and almost goth styling the crow lives on it was it was never matched in any of the, the 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 other movies or the tv series but it just created this this unique looking world and and as, as i said this was very very early in, in comic book uh, adaptations i at the time of the crow worked for a magazine an entertainment magazine and and brandon lee did an, an exclusive interview with the magazine that i worked for and this was this was just before the Crow went into production. It was coming off the back of Rapid Fire and did a a UK press tour. I'm, I'm not saying for a moment that I had any connection apart from we we ran exclusive photos and we ran an exclusive interview uh, with Brandon Lee. There are some Hollywood deaths which hit you, and this hit me hard. I don't know why. I don't know whether it was the fact that we were of a similar age. I don't know if it's the fact that him being the son of the legend of uh, legendary Bruce Lee. And, and he meeting a tragic end. But this hit me really hard. This really, really upset me, this death. It felt so needless for somebody, uh, and listening to the tapes uh, of the way they talked enthusiastically about film and about about comics and about everything else, that in, in another another universe, I think we would have got on very well. But but boy, this this really hit me. For a long, long time, I found it very difficult to watch The Crow the first time. As I said, I had no connection other than than this story and, and listening to the to the audio tapes of when the, the story was transcribed. But it's funny that how this this happens that people you've never met can can touch your lives and, and and really really upset you. But but getting back to the film, this is a great comic book adaptation. Alex Prius in his first movie, and he was somebody who came from from music videos, poured everything into this, and it must have been a difficult job going back to it reconstructing this film because a lot of a lot of sequences got dropped a lot of sequences got reorientated into the movie mm. but if you didn't know that brandon lee had died during this then you you would never have guessed because it feels pretty seamless yeah in amongst the scenes that were dropped um the character from the comic book skull cowboy yes. who was supposed to be a guide for a draven apparently this the scenes had been shot with michael berryman if again michael berryman's one of those actors that you will recognize the face if not the name and he was he his scenes have been shot but because they couldn't get all the extra eric draven sections done around it the whole character was taken from it watching this film and if you take away the loss of brandon lee and watch it just as a film without that like wanting to see someone's last performance this is such a great film and it stands up so well i've not seen this for a couple of decades and it's always been one that I've, I've avoided rewatching because I was worried that it would kind of let me down, that my nostalgia wouldn't live up to what I'm actually seeing in front of me. But when I watched it, because it landed on Netflix and it's well worth checking out, I was well and truly engrossed right from the start. I knew what the story was going to do. I knew how it was going to go. But everything just captured me. The music uh, to the backdrop, the, like I say, the noirish kind of setting, the rain-soaked streets, the flames of buildings like being set ablaze, the death, the destruction, and all the cast. This isn't just Brandon Lee's film, because everyone in this film really shines. You've got Michael Wincott playing Top Dollar. Now, he's a he's an actor who always kind of played the creepy menacing person because he has a very gruff voice and he looks very weasley. And 
you might recognise him from um, Prince of Robin Hood, Prince of yeah, Thieves, Robin where Hood, he played Prince Guy of Gisborne. Uh, Bay Ling is in there as Mika. Anna Levine, David Patrick Kelly, Lawrence Mason. The great Tony Todd is in there playing Grange. But you've also got Ernie Hudson. And how good is Ernie Hudson? Yes. He's playing Sergeant Daryl Albrecht, who's the only person who seems to be the, the, the good cop within this corrupt city, who also re- recognises that maybe Eric has come back from the dead and deserves to wreak his vengeance and starts helping him along the way. I just I, I want to quickly mention that um, the child actress Sarah, uh, playing the character of Sarah, who is kind of like a, almost a street orphan, except her mother is, you know, she's hooked on drugs. And be, like, there's a, the, the, the child actress playing her, Rochelle Davis, really, really sells it quite well. And her bonding relationship with Brandon Lee's Eric Draven throughout the film starts to really perform a heart of it in such a way that Eric manages to bring her mother back to her out of her drug fueled state to try to be a mother. And I, I watching it again, like over the past week, I almost had tears in my eyes at the moment when her mother finally realizes she needs to be a mother and is trying to cook eggs for her. And I was like, that's such a touching scene in this whole thing. But it all comes back to Brandon Lee and his presence, the costume design, because it's it's torn T-shirts and ripped jackets, but with duct tape holding things together and masking tape. And it, yeah, if you want to make a Halloween costume, this is the Halloween costume to make. And I did this one year. I made myself a full crow one and I got like black tape around my fingers and across my arms and around my chest. And it's it works because it's simple, it's effective, but it also strikes a unique presence. You can recognise a crow costume as much as you can recognise a Batman costume. And like you said, this is the Batman film that we never really got. I mean, the look of the crow has become a, a piece of goth iconography. Uh, and, and people who've never even seen the film will tie into the look uh, of, of the crow and, and, and Brandon Lee's distinctive look that he, that he brought to that film. It was a fantastic, not only physical performance, because he doesn't really rely much on, on his martial arts skills, but there's a, a physicality to the way that he walks into a room. One scene where he, he jumps onto a table and everything is so effortless. He was a, a he was going to be a big star, and that's the saddest thing I think about this film is what could have been. Uh, one of the th- ways that the film stands out is it just had such a fantastic soundtrack album, which tied in into into sort of goth rock with the Cure and their song "Burn" becoming the the, the title track to the film. Um, you you got bands like Stone Temple Pilots. You've got bands like Nine Inch Nails on there. It's just a, a great soundtrack. And again, gives it that kind of, uh, of punk rock Batman feel to it. That's what this, <laughs> this movie is. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a legacy is in Brandon Lee's performance and the, the unique look of the film all put together with, with a brilliant soundtrack. The film did have sequels. Crow City of Angels, which isn't bad. Yeah. Isn't bad. Uh, it starred uh, Vincent Perez, uh, who played Ash Conven, who, along with his son Danny, are killed, and he comes back as the crow, and the villain, feature, uh, the villain featured is Iggy Pop, who's, who's great in it. But he just likes that panache that the first film had and feels a little bit more like a remake than a sequel. Uh, we had a, a TV series, which is, even though it had Dick Ascos in the lead role, 
who played Eric Draven, originally played by Lee, is is low budget and therefore very forgettable. Crow Salvation, which I've not seen, I've to be honest, I've not seen any after uh, the Crow Two and a couple of episodes of Stairway to Heaven, the TV series. Yeah, the, there's been the Crow Salvation and the Crow Wicked Prayer, which was released in two thousand and five. The Crow Wicked Prayer, I've not seen that one. I have seen Salvation. It wasn't anything worth ever watching. And I avoided Wicked Prayer because I heard so much about it that had Edward Furlong and David Boreanaz in. What is good news is that there was going to be The Crow 2037, which was going to be a planned sequel written and scheduled to be directed by Rob Zombie in the late 90s. But thankfully, it was never made. But that gets us to the modern day where there's been talks since 2008 about rebooting the crow and every three years it comes back again and again originally in 2008 Stephen norrington was kind of attached then norrington left and in 2011 it was juan carlos fresnadillo who'd been chosen to direct it and then that went on the sidelines and it's gone through hand after hand after hand like i say it's literally every three years something comes out prius in 2019 like talked about the possibility of a reboot and he says he personally tries to squash it every time he hears of one even though he's not really been able to stop them from moving forwards if they want to make it and they will just make it because they'll just want to make money but he feels that there's no reason to make a reboot because that first film is so great and brandon is so great in it and i I didn't really agree with him when i first read this but like i said i hadn't watched the, the original film for a couple of decades and I've said over the past few years, when, when we've had people like um, Jason Momoa being linked to a reboot, and I've been like, let's give this a shot. Let's give this a shot. But now, after re-watching The Crow and realising how perfect a film it is, I can kind of see the point of maybe we shouldn't remake it, or if you are going to reboot it, don't make it Eric Draven. Yeah. But Stick then you away get into the, the Eric sequel Draven territory, story. don't you? And you just create yeah. an anthology around The Crow. Because the most recent news, um, April the 1st this year, it was announced that Bill Skarsgård is set to star as Draven with Rupert Sanders directing and Edward R. Pressman and Malcolm Gray co-producing. Filming should be starting this month. We'll wait and see because the way that the Crow remakes have gone, it won't be that surprising if we announce in a couple of weeks that that they've passed on it. If you've not had a chance to see it and you're a comic book fan or you're a fan of seeing comic book characters that that you probably don't know it's worth checking out james obar's graphic novels which are beautifully illustrated are beautifully written and and very very poetic uh uh, and and each page uh streams with the tragedy that he faced in his own life uh they're, they're a fantastic read but the first film the crow with brandon lee is an absolute classic a film that that i've got a lot of mixed emotions about it's not that a film that i just like I just find it a very hard watch, knowing knowing the outcome of it, but well worth seeing. Andy, we can find it on Netflix, I believe. Yes, it's uh, it's been on Netflix for the past couple of weeks. Well worth checking out. If you've never seen The Crow, I urge you to watch it. And if you're like me, that you've always been unsure about going back and rewatching it because it might not live up to what you remember, trust me, it well and truly lives up to every nostalgic memory you have of this film. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. Andy is the man in the flying seat. That's a hint of where I'm going with my reviews. Andy, what have you got for us this week? So I'll start off with Dashcam, which is the latest found footage aspect film 
from director Rob Savage. Hi, I'm Annie Hardy, and you're watching Van Car. Another day in paradise. Hello? Listen, I just need you to take my friend somewhere nearby. This is Angela, her and I, taking a trip. Did you find me? Oh. You should go see if she's alive. Hello? Hello? She's here! What? Oh. Hey, what was that? Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, what the f? Look at this! Where are you going? Where are you going? Annie Hardy plays a version of herself, live streaming from her car during the COVID-restricted era, making up lyrics around random suggestions from her stream viewers. She's fed up with the COVID measures and homelessness in LA, where she's from, and so she heads over to the UK to crash with an old bandmate named Stretch, and events then start to transpire, which involve an old lady that she ends up couriering home, who may not be all she appears to be. Cue the horror. Cue the shocks, cue the shaky cameras. This is all done in the found footage style via her mobile phone stream. Now, Savage brings some of that sheen to this that he brought to the excellent host previously. As the live feed plays out with the occasional signal drops and cuts, the commenters' messages fire up alongside the screen, a technique that was also used to amusing effect in, in Spree, which went to streaming last year, with viewers believing that things were faked and claiming the effects are bad. However, Unlike those other two films, as well made as Dashcam is, it falls too much into the traps and pitfalls of the found footage genre, such as rapid motion obscuring most of the happenings, something that host managed to avoid by having mostly static cameras and contrived reasons for others to be the focus. Why, for example, would Stretch even care about keeping the camera running when Annie isn't around? Annie herself is somewhat of a negative unlikable conspiracy nut. She makes for a grating central presence. And you really hope in this film that the final girl trope isn't going to be used because you genuinely want her to die. But in a way, that kind of adds something slightly refreshing to the film. And it has to be said that controversial as her opinions are and her takes are, her lyrics that she throws over the end credits, drawing reference on the names of the people involved in the production, all improvised makes for some amusing watching. Dashcam isn't a bad film, and it certainly showcases what Rob Savage can really do with a low budget and a unique gimmick. It's just a shame that it falls into those traps and pitfalls that little bit too much. I quite fancied this until you just reviewed it, Andy. I'd say it's still worth watching, but Host was a much better film. Okay, yeah, and Host is a, is a great film. Uh, what else do you have for us? On the complete contrast... I have Chicken Her and the Hamster of Darkness. I didn't know until you told me this is based on a Dark Horse comic. From the moment my dad brought me home, I was preparing for the day when I would become a great adventurer like him. This is it. I always wanted an adventure. The greatest undiscovered treasure of all time? I have no idea. You need a guide? I'm Meg. <laughs> Follow me. <laughs> Who's ready to ride? Yeah. 
get them. Watch out! Chicken hair! Chicken hair! This is an Indiana Jones-esque adventure of a half-chicken, half-her son of the King of Featherbeard. Yes, you heard right. A half-chicken, half-her. Don't even ask or even think about how that could have genetically happened. Called Chicken Her, who aspires to be a great adventurer for the Royal Adventure Society, and who's got a particular obsession with an artefact known as the Hamster of Darkness that has eluded adventurers throughout the ages, including his own father and his uncle, who turned against each other over the, over the years. Now, this is apparently adapted from a Dark Horse comics, and the film, it's vibrant, it's fun. It's a little derivative of the genre that it's emulating. Seriously, when I say this is an Indiana Jones light, I mean that he's got a fedora and a whip because that's what adventurers should have. And every now and then, the theme music almost, almost, but legally different enough to get away with it, leans into the Indiana Jones theme. And the film's got enough charm and thrills to sustain the runtime. It lacks the major impact and it seems perfectly suited to the small screen on Netflix. And this is how Sony, when they did their deal with Netflix to release some films via that service and others to the big screen, they seem to have picked well here because I think this would have just got buried and done nothing on the big screen. But on the small screen, it makes for a nice little Saturday afternoon. Sit with your family, watch it, enjoy it. Kids will get a lot out of it. Adults will enjoy the references that are in there and find some fun to have. It's not something that I'll probably ever go back to. Unlike films like The Bad Guys, which I can't wait to revisit. This is one that I'm glad I watched it. I enjoyed it. I can now happily move on and move on to other things. Polished animation. Decent voice cast, generic story. As mentioned at the top end of the programme, I finally got to see Top Gun Maverick. Andy, I know you liked it. We discussed whether it would be the film of the summer, and it seems that it is the film of the summer. Um, I've discussed this on on the BBC a couple of weeks ago, and this need for nostalgia. We talked about uh, Jurassic World, and we talked about this, and why this has been the film. Because this is you know, 35 years since Top Gun came out and was really uh, an ideological film of its time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing that this has caught the public's attention. Uh, rather than tell you, uh, yes, I did enjoy the film. I thought it was great. And rather than go through the plot, because Andy's already done that, it's, it's talking about why this film has been so successful. Uh, I like the fact that it's almost the flight plan of the original film. It's almost that the last act is the attack on the Death Star. Um, I like it. I think it's very clever how it's a film that sets a ticking time bomb all the way through because you're given what the scenario is for the entire length of the film. You're given the mission on whether these guys are going to complete the mission or are people going to fail. I thought it had got heart. I thought the scene with Val Kilmer uh, made me well up. Yeah. Uh, I thought I thought it was incredibly touching. There was a couple of times in the, in the film, you know, the film starts out. It could be the Tony Scott movie, you know, slow mo uh, fighter planes landing, and then it's got Tom Cruise, who is just magnetic. It's a bit like he's aged, but he's aged so incrementally that you hardly notice unless you were to put the two films back to back. I mean, he looks phenomenal for a man who's who's just about to hit sixty. It's got heart. It's got the kind of cinema that needs to be seen on a big screen. I mean, I think I figured out how they did a lot of the flying sequences. 
but boy, they 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 put you up there. It feels real. It's mm. bravado filmmaking. I think it's that kind of. We know a couple of things. We must be looking at CGI, but we feel as though we are in the cockpit with those characters, and it is done so well. Also, because we know that Tom Cruise does his own stunts and that he will make it as real as possible. We know that because he's getting thrown into space for his next movie. <laughs> Absolutely enjoy- I loved it. I-, I enjoyed the hell out of it. I think it's it's a great, nostalgic summer movie that you don't have to go back and, and see the original film, which makes it, makes it even more intriguing as to why this has been the biggest hit of the summer so far. Yeah, I liked it. Didn't love it. Liked it. And I think it is, it's one of the freshest blockbuster movies of recent years it like you say it feels real the stunt work is really well done and the heart to the story i agree with you entirely on the val kilmer aspect really well handled and a really good way to insert him into there referencing his own problems through his character absolutely absolutely had me welling up on the touching moments between the two in that film yeah, it needs to be seen on the big screen. Yeah. I think that this would lose the impact on the small screen, especially when those jet engines kick in and you feel the bass throw you back into the seat and then Danger Zone rips rips out. Man, if you're not banging your head at that point, then there's something seriously wrong with you. Because for a film that's, that's over 35 years old, this can't be just a nostalgia rush. There must be people coming to this film for the very first time who've not seen Top Gun. Yeah. Who've come to it fresh uh, and maybe even heard of Top Gun, but have come to this because it is uh, more than a retread. I think uh, Kaczynski has always delivered great visuals, also very realistic looking uh, visuals in all of his films. And it's slick uh, and it's it's a positive movie in the same way that the other one is. It gets you punching the air. Uh, I think the, the 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 one element that I really liked about it is they took away the militaristic aspect, which I had a problem with with Top Gun. It was uh, it was basically uh, a Ronald Reagan wet dream, and I always had, yeah. due to being a a, a lefty woke liberal, <laughs> that that element uh, went through it, and I think they 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 handled it uh, perfectly in this film. So he's uh, got a surprising emotional bash. Tom Cruise is just a magnetic film star. This is the film of the summer so far. So that's Top Gun Maverick. What can we watch out for at the cinema and on streaming this week? So at cinemas this week, uh, two films that we've been keeping our eye out for. You First of all, you've got Blumhouse's Black Phone, which is another oh, low-budget horror, so and it looks so creepy. Uh, hopefully we're going to get something out of that and be able to report back on the next show on that one. And um, Elvis which is Baz Luhrmann's uh, all-singing, all all-dancing biopic of Elvis Presley. Um, over on streaming, there's not a great deal this week that's caught my eye. Apple TV have Char-Char Real Smooth, which is a film which sees fresh out of college and without a clear-life path going forward. 22-year-old Andrew is stuck back at home with his family in New Jersey, but he, he wants to try to get his non-existence resume and get a party started, which lands in the perfect job of motivational dancing. It's not really my cup of tea, but because it's landed on Apple TV, I'll probably give it a shot because you know what my motto is. Yeah. Apple TV is quality over quantity. Now TV and Sky, though. Oh, they're delivering this week. Not only do we have The Survivor, which is Ben Foster, Vicky Creeps and Peter Sarsgaard in Barry Levison's drama about Harry Heft, the real life survivor of Auschwitz, who was forced to take part in boxing matches. Sounds like an interesting biopic. But 
I know you're going to get excited here. Uh, Resident Evil, welcome to Raccoon City. Yes, you'll get a chance to watch it this week and let me know what you think about it. Like I said, I thought it was very close to the first two games and I got a lot out of this. I'm very interested to find out what you think of it. And then, even better, oh, you've been waiting for this one for a long time. Clifford the Big Red Dog lands on Mount TV this it. week. I remember you just having <laughs> such a great time. It was dreadful. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that lands this week. It, if you've got young uns and you want to sit them in front of the TV while you go and get up to other things, Clifford the Big Red Dog should just about <laughs> keep just, them entertained. That, you know, like, like torturing your neighbour or uh, yeah. doing your taxes. Um, everywhere else, there's nothing that's really stood out. So my pick of the week, my pick of the week would be Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. I'm going to actually re-watch this this week because I had a lot of fun with it. Cool. So it's something to watch for nearly everybody except Clifford. That's it for this week. But before we go, and we do this every week and it's our neat things. Now, I've been brimming with neat things and just basically trying to sort out which one I'll bring to the party this week. Andy, Andy struggled last week. But Andy, have you got one for this week? Yes, I have. Now, I've struggled over the past few weeks because I've not been doing a lot of travelling except for like the once a week with a train. And the audiobook that I was listening to, which had gave us a neat thing like four weeks ago, was such a long audiobook that it's taken me up until now to finish. And that was Will Wheaton's Still Just a Geek. And that was a great one. And I still stand by my putting that as a neat thing because his reflections on his own past throughout that are touching. There's moments where he's breaking down in tears. But I'm finally on to another audiobook from Audible. Which is? And it's another biopic. And it's Bob Odenkirk's comedy, 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 drama, a memoir. That sounds yes. interesting. I'm, I think I'm in already. I don't think you've got to explain it any more than that. That's basically it. I mean, it's Bob Odenkirk talking about how he started off like writing comedy sketches, uh, working on productions of shows, then getting his own stuff, his failed projects, working through comedy, 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 and then suddenly striking it big when he takes a dramatical approach on TV in Breaking Bad. And he suddenly hit the big time from that. And it's it, it's Bob himself reading it. And it, he's, he's one of those people who you could listen to read their life story and just absolutely fall in love with it. He's witty. He's charming. He's a bit offhand with some of his comments. He's having fun reading his life story and kind of fleshing it out and embellishing it or underplaying it in some cases. And it's a great, great listen. I always say this with biopics. As much as the reading of them can be fun, the audio books are always so much better when it's the actual person reading yeah, them. Yeah, I agree. Because they they lend a lot more emphasis onto the the more poignant moments. And sometimes they add in extra things. Will Wheaton did it in Still Just a Geek. There's a lot of things where he says, this isn't actually in the book, but I need to mention this and the ad around it. Bob Odenkirk, you can tell the emotional impact of some things because he's reading it from his own heart. It's a great listen. Bob Odenkirk, everyone should be a fan of him. Come on, who isn't? If you're not a fan of Bob, Bob Odenkirk, why are you listening to this show? Well, Get I mentioned it. I mentioned it <laughs> as my neat thing. Uh, it's been fantastic, this this series. Can't wait for it to come back. Um, I can't wait for it to come back, but I'm also, there's so much trepidation. because I'm dreading, yeah. There's I'm, that I'm sense the of dread about what's going to happen when they come back. Especially with that cliffhanger. Oh, it was brilliant. Oof. It was brilliant. But yeah, Bob Odenkirk's comedy, 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 drama, a memoir, recently been released on audiobook and physical book. Get it however you want, but I do suggest 
audible uh my neat thing again i mentioned this i think last week and it's season three of the boys which picks up a year or so after the second season finale so much to enjoy it's filthy it's violent it has probably the worst language i have ever seen on any tv show it's got superheroes doing appalling things to each other there are shots in this series that i will never unsee if you've seen episode (laughs) one you'll know what i mean there's death by sex toy there is this impeding sense of of doom as the unblinking remorseless uh, homelander you know their version of superman goes crazier and crazier that you know there's just going to be a a massive massive showdown this is what would happen if you got superheroes in the real world and i tell you what folks they're not nice people i I just started reading the comic books and to be honest um, maybe because i've come to the comics afterwards but i think the tv series is so much better it's much clearer it doesn't have to rely on the sort of the snarky uh kind of inside jokes that, that Garth Ennis has a tendency to, and I'm a big Garth Ennis fan mm. in the books, but I think, you know, the, the drama that, that they brought into each of the three series has, has been has been awesome. This is uh, great. Uh, I think I know where it's going. I will be constantly surprised. It is gross at times, as I say. It is filthy, but it is uh, one of those series that as soon as it lands, more so than anything else at the moment, I've just got to see it. It's gory, gory goodness, and it's building to something really, really interesting. And my my neat thing is The Boys Season 3. Catch it on Amazon Prime. And that, folks, is it for this week. We managed to get two shows in two weeks. That's how dedicated we are to bringing you the film file. Yes, and we'll be, next few weeks, we'll also be doing normal shows because I've now got a couple of weeks off work after this week we'll get some catch up on films the intention is over this next week i'll catch up on some of the films that we've missed including the one that we said eh, i'm not that bothered with jurassic world yeah i'll get round to watching it and we'll feed back on those little gaps in our film watching film watching recent history indeed we will so andy glad to have you back glad to be doing the film file on a regular basis because you know can't rain all the time 